0: In our last episode, we discussed Hal Ashby's The Last Detail, a 1973 road trip movie about two Navy petty officers escorting a disgraced 18-year-old recruit to prison for petty theft and deciding they should show him a good time along the way. Director Alexander Payne has said this was one of the movies he showed his cast on the holdovers ahead of shooting the film as a way of immersing them in the era of filmmaking he was trying to capture. The narrative itself wasn't a direct inspiration but the style of acting and presentation in The Holdovers are modeled after 70s movies, from the title screen and opening music, right down to the on-screen copyright notice. At the same time, the two movies do have some resonance with each other, particularly in their central triumvirate. Two older adults, one black, one white, and a troubled teenager they wind up trying to help and support without necessarily parenting him. In this case, the trio is stuffy prep school teacher Paul Hunnam, played by Paul Giamatti, school cook Mary Lamb, played by Divine Joy Randolph, and Angus Tully, played by Dominic Sessa. In 1970s New England, Angus is one of a small handful of holdovers the kids expected to stay at their boarding school over Christmas break. Hunnam, who doesn't have anyone to celebrate with, agrees to preside over the school and the holdovers during the break while everyone else leaves. Mary, whose adult son has just died in military service in the Vietnam War, similarly stays behind to cook for the remnants. The three of them form an unlikely group who do manage to bond in some ways, and in other ways that are crucial to the story, fail to bond. We'll get into it after this break.
1: Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty and staff depart the campus for a two week winter break but there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the Holdovers.
0: Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that?
1: You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on (laughs) us. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. You just earned yourself a detention, sir! Being
0: here with you is already one big detention! Son of a bitch! That's another
1: detention! Do you think I want to be babysitting you? No, I was praying your mother would pick up the phone, or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a flying saucer! My father's dead.
0: You don't tell a boy that's been left behind at Christmas that nobody wants him? What's wrong with you? So we'd already discussed the holdovers a fair bit in our best of 2023 roundup, obviously an extreme brief, but we kind of hit the points that we maybe most wanted to hit. What do you all want to talk about in relation to this movie? I'm... Pretty curious, we didn't necessarily dig a ton into what it gets from the 70s visual styling, you know, whether that's important thematically or, you know, just like a fun little visual conceit, like what exactly Alexander Payne is doing with all of that. Is that a place to start?
1: I think it's worth starting there because that could have been too cute. I chuckled when I saw the retro focus features logo from the 1970s focus features that never existed. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, it suits the setting. But I think it also suits the way the story is told. I know Scott's kind of spoken this of, of a reminder of you know this used to be movies. You know, your movies like you know not, not all of them were as good as the holdovers, which I liked a lot, or The Last Detail. But you know, you used to get these sort you know movies about people learning to about each other and doing things. You know, more than you do now. So it's refreshing. You know, this 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 is played art houses when it in the era that it's set, it would would have played more widely, like a uh, little bit band does uh, when they uh, go see that
3: yeah i mean i i saw this movie the first time i saw this movie i saw it here at the music box in chicago during a you know a well-attended but certainly not packed matinee and you know the music box theaters has been around forever it's not any kind of newfangled multiplex but uh, you know you, you kind of enter a, a movie theater like that with a crowd like that watching a film like this and it feels like kind of a time machine because it's so much like Payne's vision of what it would be like to make a movie in the seventies. Just, you know, as if he were making a movie at the time and playing to an audience at the time and expecting, you know, an audience of today to, to respond to it. And they did. I mean, this film got, you know, the screening I went to, there was, you know, polite applause at uh, warm applause at the end of, <laughs> of, of the film from a, you know, not a massive, matinee crowd just a lot of you know people who really enjoyed it and, and it, it's a film that that is not uh, you know' it's, it was the one film I think last year that I that I recommended to everybody everybody in my family when they are looking for things to see what of the awards movies should they see you know what what, what should we go to see over at Christmas break etc it was always the holdovers because I felt really confident that it would be be a film that, you know, a wide audience would get a lot out of. And I think there's something so satisfying about that. and so satisfying about this movie. It's kind of accessibility. It's emotional generosity, you know, while while also kind of being, you know, subtle and artful in the ways that it needs to be.
2: Yeah, I wasn't on the uh, Best of the Year podcast, but I was on an episode where we talked about this for Your Next Picture show back when it like was first in theaters, I think in October or something. I don't even remember what what episode it was on, but I, I talked about it for Your Next Picture show because at that point, I think Scott and I were the only ones who had seen it. And I talked about... Taking my mom to see it and how much she loved it and it like kind of had a, a similar experience afterwards of it just being such like a recommendable film to pretty much a, a crowd pleaser, you know, and, and that has certainly borne out in its uh all the attention and nominations it's gotten since. But the thing I really wanted to bring up in this discussion was A particular quote that Paul Hunnam says during the trip to Boston when they're in the museum and talking about history, because you know, he is a a history teacher. And I truly think I might have to redo the opening to this podcast where we have a bunch of movie quotes sprinkled in to include this (laughs) quote, which I, I am I am now going to read in full because it's so good and it's like probably my favorite. Part or at least the part of the movie that stuck with me the most. He says, There's nothing new in human experience, Mr. Tully. Each generation thinks it invented debauchery or suffering or rebellion, but man's every impulse and appetite, from the disgusting to the sublime, is on display right here all around you. So before you dismiss something as boring or irrelevant, remember, if you truly want to understand the present or yourself, you must begin in the past. You see, history is not simply the study of the past, it is an explanation of the present. That is like the thesis statement of this podcast. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm I'm, very glad we're finally discussing it. But to kind of go back to the question that well, we started with, uh, you know, why this movie is set in the past and why it looks the way it does. is like it, it is a living, breathing reminder that like this is what movies used to be like and it's what they can be now. They still can be this, mm. you know, and people can still enjoy it and it can still get awards attention and box office and, you know, and it can feel vital, even though everything else about this industry tells us that like, this is not the kind of movie that audiences want, but it is, you know, and the fact that it is framed as the type of movies that audiences used to go see without a second thought, I think really, it makes that poignant and exciting.
0: You know, uh, leaving aside sort of this the significance of the what audiences want question, I'm, I'm really glad you called out that quote, Genevieve, because now I'm examining it with more distance from the film. I think in context in the movie when I was watching it, I took that to be much more Paul Hunnam talking about his field and about the art in front of him and Angus, but also about why he teaches what he teaches and why it's important to him. And I think all that's true. But in retrospect, given some of the things that we discover about him later in the film He's kind of talking about himself mm-hmm. as well and he's he's talking about how Angus can learn from from Paul's kind of juvenile rebellion, you know, from his troubled youth stage which Angus is going through like right in front of him and where all of that can lead and how much it can affect your life. I don't know that I saw in the moment how much he's kind of holding himself up, you know, not as a positive example of how to frame and understand history and and use it as a teaching tool, but as a negative example that's basically, don't turn out like me, kid. Hmm. Curl your toes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that maybe stands out for me as I'm looking back at this movie and just kind of like the endless ways to analyze it is... How th- our, our little central trio, there are so many different ways that they split up into pairs that exclude the other two, you know, two of them are adults and one of them is a kid. Two of them are kind of, you know, settled in their life in a lot of ways and have a lot of the important decisions in their life behind them. Uh, one of them very clearly has a very important decision or two ahead of him. Two of them are white. Two of them are men. One of them is not either of these things. Two of them are not parents. And one of them is. There's just, you know, two of them are, are peers working at the same organization. And one of them is a client of that organization. <laughs> They're just all of these different little ways that they they group up into two people together and one outsider. And watching the film navigate that in so many different ways, with just kind of an awareness of it, uh, I think is one of the most fascinating things about it.
3: You do come away from the film feeling like you've know these characters so well, and I guess it's maybe because of those dynamics of the uh, of the three characters together. And then, as you say paired off as they are you get as much kind of juice out of the uh, out of these characters as as possible and your assumptions about them are modified and complicated a little bit i mean you know i think of course it starts really with paul and angus i think paul's assumption at this point in his life is that every single student that comes through this school is just Horribly entitled, and you know, worthy of his contempt, unless until proven otherwise. And uh, you know, I think once it's established that Angus is not quite doesn't quite fit into that box, and they have something in common, you know, then that re- relationship takes on an, an, another form. But at the same time, I mean, there, there are you know you get some interesting stuff between Mary and Paul, where where Paul is very sensitive to Mary's situation and what she has lost, and obviously gets really furious if people have anything to say about Mary. But but then he goes too far, and Mary calls him out on it frequently as well, where he is uh, kind of a, a blowhard, and uh, and she sort of puts him in his place. I, you know, it, it's a film I think that knows its characters well and gives, and that the actors all kind of embody well two. I mean I think this is why there's a reason why I mean I think two of the three actors are, are front runners to win an Oscar the other one I think people feel maybe a little bit burned that he didn't get a nomination himself so you know that's a testament to the performances and a testament to the to characters as they've been written
1: yeah, I love the Paul Mary relationship because for all they don't have in common, they share the fact they're both outsiders in this environment. I mean, he's he's a he's a he's an alumnus of of the school, but he was never really part of the culture. And and I think they kind of recognize. And and I also think, you know, for all his. Meanness to his students, he's you know not to get into connections early, but he he kind of emerges as a man of of tremendous sympathy and compassion, and and I think you know he realizes what's happened to Mary with losing hers her her son is is un, unfathomable, and that for all the uh, all the attention paid to it in that ceremony, it's 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 not enough, and it's not and it is just that a, a ceremony.
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting how. Paul and Mary's relationship, in a lot of ways, turns on alcohol. <laughs> to go back to Tasha's uh, initial kind of observation about, you know, these little pairings that leave one of them out. I, I mean, there's a couple scenes of Angus like trying to get in, or you know, trying to he like he really wants a, a Miller, Miller High Life, you know, and, and, and he can't. And then Paul orders a, a double whiskey, I think, at the same t- at the same time. But, you know, and Paul and Mary, like, they bond over drinking whiskey together, and he gives it to her as a, as a Christmas gift. You know, it's it's like they, they both get the book, but then she also gets the, the, the whiskey, you know. Um, but so, like, it's this thing that allows them to bond, but it's also something we see them both struggling with to a certain mm-hmm. degree. I mean, Paul is, is I think you know, we can probably say is a somewhat functioning alcoholic. Mary, I don't think that's the case, but she does have that moment at the party where she just gets blitzed and has a breakdown in the kitchen, and it's it's very sad. And, you know, Paul and Angus are kind of there with her in that moment, along with Danny, played by Naheem Garcia, the groundskeeper, and notably one of the few other Black characters in this film who who have uh, lines and it's interesting that we kind of get this interaction between Mary and Danny, independent of, of the other uh, part of, of, of this group, you know, and where he, you know, he gives her this gift and she's like, you know, really kind of apprehensive and awkward about, you know, his advances such as they are. And it seems like he's really sweet, but there's like, there's so much like kind of implied history there and potentially some sort of acknowledgement that they are the two black people in this situation and are like have a shared outsider status in that way. Yeah, that whole party scene is is really fascinating for the way it does as you kind of say Tasha allow for these other sort of pairings and not put All of the emotional, thematic weight on this like three pointed stool, you know, like each leg kind of stands on its own based on uh, how the film is built and kind of gives them all something other than each other to bounce off of.
0: I guess the missing thing in that equation is there's really not all that much that Angus and Mary have in Mm -hmm. common. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's the both of them are kind of connected to each other through Paul in a way, but I'm, I'm straining to think of any way where they're able to directly connect in a more meaningful way than just, you know, occasionally kind of joshing Paul about like his stiffness, you know, they, they get to bond over the fact that they both get this same ridiculous book for Christmas. But that's a very small thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very small thing compared to, you know, bonding over alcohol in a time of loneliness and grief. I think you're right in that Mary isn't necessarily a functioning alcoholic, but she's definitely going through some stuff and kind of numbing it with alcohol, which is something the two of them can share. If anything, it sort of seems like Paul maybe is seeking her out a little more because he knows she'll drink with him now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I Dominic Sessa's performance is my favorite in this movie. Uh, you know, it's it's a close race, but I think he's just fabulous. But Paul and Mary's relationship is is by far my favorite thing in this movie. Just the way it manages to be Collegiate and yet complicated, you know, complicated with class and race and gender and, uh, you know, position and experience and, and all of these other aspects, you know, they're they're not quite friends, but they're capable of giving each other useful things from time to time of, you know, kind of like collaborating on moments. In ways that I just, I think are really beautiful. And I think it's just fascinating that, you know, there there is that tension with Danny over he sees himself as a potential romantic partner and Mary just doesn't seem to want to go there, especially mm-hmm. right now at this point in her life where she's dealing with the loss of her son. But with Paul, there's no romantic tension. There's no implication that he wants that kind of partnership uh, any more than she does. And it's just, you know, the rare case of a male-female couple in a movie who are adults and alone and capable of relating to each other where there's no will-they-won't-they they tension. There's no there's no spark. And that's just not a question. They can actually be friends with each other.
3: I love him kind of going over to her part of the place and watching the newlywed game w- with her. And it, it, it kind of brings me to something that I always kind of obsessed over with Alexander Payne, who's a filmmaker I I love, and whose work I ranked for the reveal, is that his interiors are so... Thoughtful, you know. There's something just. You think about all the spaces in his movies, about you know, just like like the homes, the homes in in films like uh, Election and you know Sideways and this in in Mary's space in, in this movie and Paul's space in this movie, like the lived-in quality, the the amount of detail and production design. You don't win Oscars for that sort of thing because you know it, it's not ornate and it's not historical or anything like that but it creates so much of kind of the ambiance of of these movies and makes it makes them feel real and uh, I, i think and i think the realness of the space really helps draw out the warmth in this friendship between mary and paul
2: to return real quickly to the relationship, such as it is between Mary and Angus, I don't disagree that it is far less developed than the one uh, between Mary and Paul and between Paul and Angus. I do think there is like an insinuation that there is a sort of maternal relationship happening there, very, very lightly. Like it's not, not one that I think Mary even wants or is consciously cultivating, but I think it's something that. Angus, we meet his mom and we kind of like learn a little bit about I mean, she leaves him at school over the holidays to go off with her her husband, you know, like she's not a nurturing figure. This is a boy who hasn't had a nurturing maternal figure in a long time, if ever. So just kind of thinking about the interactions that Angus and Mary have, like there's the the lovely Christmas dinner where he he thanks her for it. And she seems like kind of genuinely happy and touch while also being like, Don't expect it again, basically, you know. And of course, the uh the scene I love of her making uh him take her luggage up to her sister's apartment on the on the very (laughs) top floor, and then he also has to walk her up at the end, you know. And she tells him he's going to do that, and he does it, and it's a very sort of motherly interaction, you know. And both of them seem kind of. A little tickled by it, you know, or at least not uh, upset by it in any way. So it's maybe a little reductive to be like, "Oh, the the mourning mother finds a, an outlet for her maternal energy, and the son finds an alternative mother figure." I don't think it's like that cut and dry, but I think there's just a little little whispers of it here and there that they are getting just a, a hint of a connection that they both miss in each other.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of that too. Where there, there's, you know, in, in a different movie, would be really easy slots to put these characters in and the way they relate to each other. But it's never quite that, you know, continuing the slot metaphor, that snug a fit. You know, mm-hmm. that that's, it's what you're describing, which is like there's elements of it, but it's not the whole thing.
3: I like how easily the film can toggle between comedy and drama. You know, because you we were mentioning the party scene and, and how Mary, you know, drinks too much. You know, and how sad that ends up becoming. But you know, I also think of of the moment where she's in the party, where she's drinking too much and has control of the music, and just is yeah. absolutely, absolutely <laughs> not going to let anybody else kind of step in and change, uh, ch- change up the uh, change to to more of a party vibe. I mean, you know, that that's a you know, so the film has that kind of dexterity of of being able to give you something funny when out of a sad scene or take you in the other direction where you're bouncing along and having a good time with these characters and then uh, kind of a heavier moment hits and uh, it can accommodate that as well. So uh, it's very satisfying in that respect.
0: I think sometimes it does both at once and and maybe that's the best. Like the scene towards the end where Paul meets uh, an old acquaintance on the street and Angus is there and the conversation that plays out. You know exactly what's going on. You don't know how far it's going to push. And then Angus starts to make sure that it gets pushed even further uh, than, than the situation would necessarily warrant. And that scene is both kind of hilarious and very uncomfortable. And also just very revealing about the drama going on. You know, it, it tells you some things that you didn't necessarily know about Paul yet, about his character, about how he feels about his job and himself, about who he'd like to see himself as, about how he feels about other people. It's all very dramatically important, but it's funny at the same time. And it's particularly funny Just watching Angus sort of see and seize his moment and how he's sort of caught in a a moment of both like incredulity and kind of malicious delight. There's just there's a lot that goes on in that sequence all at the same time. And the humor of it doesn't undercut the drama or vice versa.
2: That said, the moment of the movie for me on both of my viewings is Mary and her sister's guest room slash nursery with... The- oh baby clothes like oh just straight 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 to the heart both yes (laughs) both times i was like the second time i was like okay i know this is coming it's not gonna hit me as hard nope maybe (laughs) maybe hit me harder
3: (laughs) yeah i saw i saw the second time i saw this movie was with my wife and oldest daughter at at home and uh and that and that was like got like a spontaneous like burst of tears from the from my (laughs) daughter uh which you know i get it it's very powerful stuff
0: it's just such a thoughtful scene. You know, it's it's such a thoughtful moment because it would be so easy to leave out that kind of thing and have this kind of take the shape of a sort of very pat story of, yeah, your beloved son just died really before he had a chance to live the life that he had anticipated and that you raised him for and that you, you put all of your effort into making sure he could have these opportunities and now he's dead, but it's kind of okay because you got this white boy as yeah. like an ersatz son. Mm-hmm. Like the the very superficial version of this story is a found family situation where they all replace the things that they didn't have with each other and live happily ever after. And for me, that scene with her sister is kind of acknowledging that there are some things that she just can't get from found family, from a privileged white boy who still has a lot of growing to do. And this like still kind of like stuffy older white professor, like there are things she needs to go to family for. And in the same kind of way, you know, Angus may get a little bit of like replacement father energy from Paul or mother energy from Mary, but it doesn't fix his issues. It, it just kind of gives him a little bit more of a path forward than he might have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think acknowledging we can't get everything we want from one other person or from like one meaningful encounter is something some cinema doesn't do all that often, you know, because it, it wants its neat little narratives. Yeah. I just, I think that scene is so crucial to this story
2: yeah that scene and just like the decision to not make mary part of the boston trip to have her doing her her own thing you know like it's like the boston trip is like a a huge bonding moment for paul and angus and it works because it's the two of them and mary is having her own story and there's no attempt to try to force her in to this dynamic that there might be in a more you know kind of pat version of of this story and it a allows her to exist as an, a character independent of their narratives which is just really important especially for a character who's a black woman a black woman in a somewhat maternal role you know like these this it's very easy to fall into stereotypes and tropes regarding a black woman caretaker figure and in the boston sequences especially i think this film sidesteps them very neatly and smartly
0: Well, I think both of the films that we want to talk about in this installment are pretty smart and pretty careful about race. But also, you just bringing up the the Boston road trip, I think that trip is maybe where we most closely parallel uh, the last detail and where there's the most to talk about in terms of connections between these two films. So while I think we still have a lot more to say about the holdovers, let's go ahead and transition into connections and see what these two films have to say to each other.
1: Bring the young vandal here, Cherry's Jubilee. I'm afraid I can't. The dish contains brandy. Same deal with the bananas foster.
0: Yeah, but doesn't the alcohol just burn off?
1: Mm. It's still against the rules, ma'am. Uh, fine, oh. I'll order the Cherry Jubilee. We can share it. I can't allow that either. Can we say it's his birthday? It's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday, young man. Well, let's get you a slice of cake or some other age-appropriate dessert. Christ on a crutch, what kind of a fascist hash foundry are you running here?
0: Uh, Excuse me, ma'am, do you by chance have cherries?
1: Yes. Great. And do you have ice cream? Yes. Fantastic. Can we please get cherries and ice cream to go? And the check.
0: Right away. So now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. There are a ton of things that we could start with here in terms of like narrative parallels or or thematic parallels. But the one that I kind of want to call out because I I feel like it's the area that we least talked about in terms of the last detail is the contrast here between what it means to like show a kid a good time and, you know, give him a little space away from a, a kind of dire circumstance. Because in the last detail that involves taking him to a a brothel and giving him to lose his virginity, first in a very awkward and embarrassing way, and then and then paying a second fee in order to give him a second shot at it. No pun intended. (laughs) But then a very, very uncomfortable scene with a prostitute who just really does not seem to want to be in the profession she's in or in the situation she's in. You know, there's there's forcing uh, forcing the kid to, to drink beer, which he says over and over he doesn't want to, and then getting him drunk. There's trying to get him to fight, which he says over and over he doesn't want to, trying to drag him forcibly into all of these you know, kind of traditional male roles and worlds in terms of what it means to be a man. And then in the holdovers, <laughs> you have Paul just over and over saying, no, the you can have opposite. a beer. <laughs> you, can't, yeah. you can't have a beer.
2: I'm taking you away from this girl that you're hitting it off with at, in the party. Does he stop him from fighting? I'm sure he he stops him from from fighting at some point.
1: Yeah, he stops with the pinball guys. Of course. Not really yes. fighting. Oh, yes, but, you know. exactly. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Like every single point, it's the, the exact inverse. So he is not showing the kid a good time. He is he, he takes him the to an art
0: museum. Yeah. I, I don't uh. know what you're talking about. But yeah, yeah, the contrast there between here is a series of rituals that you as an 18-year-old boy must must step through in order to be a man and especially to be a Navy man versus let's go to an art museum and I'm going to tell you about the importance of history in your life. It's just, I think it's a great contrast.
2: Maybe this is like a a, a good place to just bring up one of the... <laughs> <laughs> the things that just breaks my heart the most in the holdovers while also just making me laugh, which is the rest of the the holdovers getting whisked away by helicopter <laughs> to a ski trip. And, yeah. and they can't get a hold of Angus's parents for him to go along. And like his, you know, his his mortal enemy gets to go. And the kids that he, that Angus was, ki- the, the younger kids that Angus was kind of like, I don't even want to call it like a mentorship because his uh, interactions with them mostly amount to like, yeah, life sucks you know, kind of uh, interactions, which I think is actually kind of maybe a little bit of a connection to uh, the last detail as well. Like, thinking of the moment when Teddy, uh, Angus's enemy, uh, chucks the kid's glove, the kid, who, uh, the Mormon kid's glove, and, and all he has to say is, twisted fucker orphaned that glove on purpose. Left you with one so the loss would sting that much more. <laughs> like, 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 his interactions with both uh, that kid and the career and a kid who wets the bed yejun mm-hmm. his version of comforting that is very like yeah life sucks and then you die kind oh. of which is a <laughs> uh feels kind of gets echoed back to him in his interactions uh with, with paul but also like i said c- kind of feels a little reminiscent of the way that Billy talks about what's facing Meadows and prison and just like how, how bad it's going to be for him. And there, there's like a, an acknowledgement that life sucks coming from all these older characters to the younger characters they're talking to.
0: At the same time, I see that as an inversion again, Mm -hmm. because I I don't think Angus is really trying to, like, educate these kids in the way of the world. He's having a bad time and he's kind of trying to drag everybody else into the the same cranky, like, everything is bad mindset that he's in. Mm -hmm. Whereas Billy in particular, like, he, he sees how bad things are likely to get for Meadows and he's kind of trying to drag everybody into a good time. He's he's mm-hmm. kind of trying to do the celebratory. Yeah, but let's not think about that. Like tonight let's drink and, and get laid and pick a fight with some marines by saying something rude about uh, about buttons and hats. You know, he's he's trying to force everybody to have a
1: good time where Angus is trying to kind of force everybody to have a bad time. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because he's having a really bad time. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I think the other short patrol doesn't want to have a bad time and kind of wants to try to or seeking escape from the bad for the from for the bad times they could be having. Whereas, yeah, Angus is is not that kid.
3: But it's interesting to think about like the whole mentor factor with Paul you know I think about it as like a parent of just like what do you show them a good time and what and what is your responsibility to actually show them how the world works you know and and, and make them more prepared to fend for themselves uh, because because even though both meadows and and angus are you know they're not that far apart in age i mean there's a there's a certain lack of worldliness to them and and things that, that the older characters have to teach them, or think that they have to teach them, and and they do them, and they do it in their own way, and and sometimes, and you know, and they and they both have some flexibility. I mean, you know, there are there are times when you know when when Billy is, it seems to be hazing Meadows and pushing him, but but there are other times when when he sh- shows him some compassion, and then that happens as well with Paul and Angus, uh, where where, where uh, Paul feels a real kinship with angus uh, uh, understands that this is not the kind of kid that he typically has to deal with at this school a kid who who isn't uh you know you t- you know you're sort of typical privileged snot uh there's something more to him than that and uh and so and so that softens uh, things up a, a bit and and gives him makes him feel you know more parentally inclined i guess uh, warmer towards him
2: i find it amusing that in both of these movies there are like official funds set aside that are being used for these <laughs> these two <laughs> two trips. You know, there is, of course, the per diem in the last detail. And then there is sort of the field trip uh, enrichment fund that Paul taps for the Boston trip. And I just I, like I said, I find it amusing that in both cases, these supervisor figures are kind of misusing official funds in order to show their delinquents a good time.
0: I mean, if you want to put it that way, there's a a parallel in that uh, Paul takes Angus to a museum where he can look at, uh, you know, very, very old, like centuries old naked people on the (laughs) wall. And Billy takes uh, Meadows to a porn shop where he can look at much more recent porn and have horrible tongue noises made at him (laughs) by somebody who apparently thinks he's helping. Like, I, I think every young man should have their sexual tutelage come from somebody making horrible yodel noises and uh, you know dog drinking water noises. like what's sexier than that really? <laughs> Give me Paul's like thought through philosophy of history over. M-m-m-m-m-m-m.
2: I mean, I I joked about it earlier, but that there is the little like uh, curl your toes moment, you know. Like, <laughs> like he does, he does briefly insinuate. Uh, oh, and and there's a a working woman as well that tries to. to uh, this is basically the same movie,
1: guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which sex worker is sadder?
2: I- <laughs> <laughs> well, one oh. is definitely colder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that would make me sad, which maybe we can briefly uh, talk about the winteriness of both of these movies uh, to ping off that. It's obviously, you know, a big part of the look of both of these movies, but it's amusing to me that the holdover is like, I, I just, I know that it's going to forever be one of those, not a Christmas movie, Christmas movies, just because of, of when it is set and sort of the ongoing desire to have like, sort of not overtly christmas movies to watch uh, at christmas and you know the
1: kind that end up on vulture's best or, christmas <laughs> movies list is that what you're talking about
2: yeah, uh, perhaps yes uh, exactly that kind um so uh yeah this is the new diehard is what is what i'm saying
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> movies have so much in common why didn't we pair those two yeah
2: <laughs> but but so even though it is uh, obviously uh, in the dead of winter, and it is a very cold movies and movie in a lot of ways. It's, its Christmas time frame does add sort of a, a layer of warmth to it. Of course, there's the Christmas party and the interiors that Scott was talking about. They do feel a little more snug than the last detail, which just feels like Every scene just like made me like want to curl up in a blanket. I was like cold and and it felt like uncomfortable, you know, Uh, and it's well, maybe not every scene, but a lot of it. So it's it felt more overtly wintry. And of course, this is all just so I can talk about my favorite cut in the film. Uh, Keith, uh, last week, you talked about your favorite cut in The Last Detail. And I wanted to mention this, but couldn't get around to it but my favorite cut is when Meadows says if it was summer we could have a picnic and then smash cut <laughs> to them having a winter a winter picnic and dipping hot dogs in a jar of mustard which is uh, just absolutely wonderful <laughs>
3: <laughs> i bother not bringing the buns. I mean, oh my God.
0: When you contrast just how they're reacting to the outside in that scene versus like I, one of the one of the images from Holdovers that just sticks with me is, you know, Paul Hunnam like walking along the sidewalk between buildings mm-hmm. of the school and seeing the ball in the snow and, uh, you know, picking it up and getting <laughs> a little toss. You know, it's, it's not like he's a, a sporty man out on a sporty adventure, but you don't feel the cold in that sequence like you just kind of feel like snow is beautiful and gives everything kind of a different look and feel whereas that picnic quote-unquote where nobody seems to be having any fun really uh i I suppose dipping a hot dog in in mustard and saying hey it's not bad isn't the worst but they're just you can feel the chill forming it's (laughs) such a shivery scene
3: yeah, I mean, that's that's New England. That's These two movies kind of give you both sides of the New England winter uh, of it just being like, oh, I'm going to be, it's, it's snowy outside, but I'm going to be all curled up and it can be, I can, that can warm up and it's going to be, going to be lovely and idyllic. And, uh, and then just, it's just freaking cold and terrible. Uh, uh, and, uh, it's, <laughs> and there's really never any comfort, even the interiors in uh, the last detail seem kind of cold and unpleasant. <laughs> so uh, there's not there's not a whole lot of break for these uh, for these guys and they're often they're often outside looking into you know there's a there's an opportunity they have in where they scope out a restaurant from the outside and just yeah. kind of and they just can't they, no they ha- can't, make a, can't make a decision you know no boosts etc so they're just but you know but they have no other real solutions so they're just standing out in the cold uh shivering you know, I think they finally do find a place, but the the cheese doesn't uh, melt. They don't have nice melty cheese on the burger, <laughs> so there's a, another crisis uh, to deal with.
0: Man, the the sadness of going into a diner and just getting like what looks more or less like a McDonald's uh, burger on a plate. You know, no condiments, like no toppings, no side anything. Eventually, you get a milkshake and a paper cup. That's it. No, no
2: fries. Things.
1: I don't know. At the yeah. least they can have fries.
2: But that sausage sandwich is good Good on. And so and I, lo- I love that the movie just has like a scene that involves nothing but them eating a sausage sandwich and saying it's good like that's the scene it's
0: great (laughs) they they look warm in that scene like they they look like actually comfortable like they're standing like three feet away from the grill so at least they're not shivering
3: and it's a bun the sausage is in a bun
0: yeah maybe that's what inspires them to seek out the hot dogs later is uh you know warm literally warm memories of uh of that experience
3: we haven't gotten a chance really to dig into both of these scenes too much in either film and they're so important in such a big kind of connection is is that they both have side trips and with the in which the young person uh, goes to uh, see their parent you know in the, in the last detail it's not even meadows's initiative to to go off on the side trip to, to visit his mother. This is uh, Billy's idea, because the kid should probably see his mom before he's put away for the, this long, and that, that ends with, it, with this uh, brief, but quite harrowing window into Meadow's home life. And then you have the scene in The Holdovers where Angus tries to go off on his own uh, to visit his father who's been institutionalized, and Paul ends up joining him. And you get that sequence, which is in its own way, extremely sad and revealing of of that character. And it's it it seemed to me, you know, when when we were talking about pairings for this movie, there were there were so many it was kind of the obvious choice, but here I think are, are scenes that are really in very close connection to the point where where you feel like pain was paying particularly close attention to the, the last detail
1: yeah they're the moments when you really kind of see these characters in a full light for the first time and like where they came from and, and what shaped them and and you know where, where the pain is uh too and and, and 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 they're both scenes of disappointment too they they both hope for more out of these visits or something different on these visits than what they got
0: yeah and it's not just that that the their parents are disappointments. It's that their parents are effectively absent. Mm-hmm. and you know, Angus's father is physically there, but he's not. He's not there, you know, both in the sense of being the parent that he wants him to be and in the sense of being the person that he remembers and is kind of trying to yearn back for. Like he's just as absent in his way as as Meadow's mother is, who literally is just not physically present. But then add to that the kind of humiliation of other people seeing what that relationship is, you know, seeing the, the degree to which your parent has, has failed, you know, has, has let you down and is, is incapable of, you know, being the kind of fantasy parent you might have in mind. I think the being witnessed in both cases in that moment of sort of looking for a connection that isn't there, like obviously Angus is, Trying a lot harder to make that that reconnection and find something important in his father than Meadows, who seems to just kind of be coming along for the ride to see his mother. He seems so much more engaged with seeing his old school than with his old house, but that in and of itself is telling. And there is a sense that you know, even if he wasn't expecting a great deal out of his mom on that visit. He definitely does get a sense of shame from having these two other men looking over his shoulder and seeing what the house he grew up in looks like.
2: All that said, the parental visit in The Holdovers is so much more consequential than the one in Last Detail, which is really ultimately just like in, in one episode among many. But in, in The Holdovers, it is what makes... Paul end up losing his job and kind of you know enables this this final sacrifice he he makes for Angus, and also it, it cements their bond in a very very deep way. Whereas in the last detail, it's more just like a another moment of understanding for the older men.
3: I think that's true. I mean, that's undeniable, really, in terms of the impact on the story. I mean, that, that you know, you, you don't have the ending of the holdovers without that scene. That that kind of is, it, but but I think I think even if the, let's say that 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 scene didn't really lead to where it ends up leading in, in the end, if they, got this, <laughs> still, yeah, if they got away with it. they still, yeah, they got away with it. You still, what, you're, what you would you what you do have in both films is is a, an important character moment uh where the uh mentor characters get a very strong glimpse into this the you know and feel end up feeling a a great deal of pity i guess and, and 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 compassion for the young person that they've sort of taken on under their wing they understand something about them that they didn't know uh already and and that kind of ends up deepening uh the relationships in both movies even if the even if it's so brief it, it you know it's not so brief in the last detail that you don't get a, kind of a lot out of it i mean and i think that's maybe an, an, an ashby touch is like you know it, it, the lead into it is is them driving into town and him pointing out where he went to high school and, you know, you get a sense of the neighborhood and, and, uh, who they'd ask to see where, you know, see where his mom, his mom might be at and she's out for the day. And let's take, let's take one good, good look at the inside of this house. And that's going to tell us absolutely everything we need to know. It's almost a matter of economy, uh, that, uh, that the last detail is able to, to, I think do a, a whole lot, you know, with just a little bit.
0: Speaking of doing a lot with a little bit, there's another kind of parallel between those sequences, which is in the last detail, Meadows walks off to talk to a neighbor to find out where his mother might have gone. And for the first time, his two escorts suddenly realize that he could have scarpered, you know, that that they might be in very serious trouble if he took this opportunity like out of their sight to run off. In the holdovers, Angus does, in Mm -hmm. fact, manage to get out of uh, Paul's sight and then does, in fact, Scarper. And, like, the contrast there between... Wait a minute. Can we trust this guy? And then finding out that their their paranoia is completely unjustified. It didn't even occur to him to run off. Versus Angus spending the entire Boston trip. You, you, he wanted to do the Boston trip in order to run off and see his dad. And it, I think it's just very clear in retrospect once he's done it that he's angling the entire time for trying to slip Hunnam's leash so he can he can run away. So, you know, once again, a, a case where these two movies are diametrically opposed as opposed to doing the exact same thing, but still kind of revolving around the same concept of, you know, slipping your minder's leash in order to go do what you want.
2: Also, just like them physically chasing their charges, and in, uh, in, in the last detail, oh it happens a, a, a couple times, and it happens very memorably in in the holdover square. Oh Paul, and just- Paul
3: whoever, who, more of Paul Giamatti running. How do we not get this more of this in movies? He's just he's just got the most hilarious gait when he runs.
2: Uh, I know, and, like- and up the stairs and.
1: Oh my god! Tom Cruise, and then Giamatti, <laughs> and then a lot of other
2: cinema's people. greatest runners. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Oh my gosh, so good.
1: The last detail ends, you know, sort of inconclusively, and Tasha might even say unsatisfyingly. You get less, <laughs> maybe perhaps less of an ending. Either way, you kind of get less of an ending than you expected. I kind of felt like I got more of an ending than I expected from the holdovers. I was you know, halfway putting my coat on at the Christmas cheer scene, which felt like a a perfectly lovely conclusion to the movie. And then I didn't realize I need it more. I really do like what happened after it. It is kind of the whole point uh, in a way, but it feels like another sort of like, in a way, kind of a fake out, uh, a last fake out for this film, which is kind of set up that romance with Carrie Preston that never happened, sets up a few other things that never really developed. Um, But, uh, you know, what do you make about the two different ways these films end? Am I alone in thinking that, that it could have ended with with the New Year's scene that an, another movie might have just called it uh, at a day and pulled and rolled credits at that point? You mean
2: with the firecracker in the in the yes. kitchen? okay yes. yeah, yeah. I, I was like Christmas cheer uh, scene, but okay, now I get it the 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 nearest scene, yeah. yeah, I feel like that definitely if it had ended there, it definitely would have cemented this as a holiday movie <laughs> you, you know uh, rather than a drama that takes place at the holidays so i as with the last detail i i appreciate that both movies left us in a less comfortable place and I, I do think it's interesting to point out Keith that one does so by kind of stopping the story before you think it is going to end and one does mm-hmm. it by stopping it after you think it's going to that's end that's
0: the point I was trying to make yeah yeah it was a great point I loved it
2: <laughs>
0: I, I, I think agree wholeheartedly I, well oh, wait. No, I mean in the, in the book version of the holdovers like we follow Paul like down the road to like where he's driving and you see him settle down in a new place and you find out what job he and, and,
2: <laughs> and then he dies.
1: <laughs> and he dies. And then yes. he dies it, of alcoholism. He's, he's murdered by the short patrol.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I, I I really like the way the holdovers ends. I I feel like if this was just and only a movie about people coming together, it would it would feel a little trite. And it's got to also be a movie about. People going apart, and about, you know, at least one character. One character learns something and one character uh, kind of like finds what she needs most in the bosom of family. And, and one character has his life disrupted in a way that it may be needed. But the kind of, you know, pregnant moment of what happens to Hunnam, it, I I think feels like a positive. You know, it, it feels like this is something that's happening maybe much later in life than it should have but he's made an important decision. And like the open-endedness of where he ends doesn't bother me in the slightest. You know, we we do get our kind of cathartic moment where he and Angus square up and, and speak to each other and get their closure. And the openness of his ending in particular just feels like possibility, I think, in the best way. Whereas to me the ending of of last detail like doesn't feel like possibility for the future. It feels like a lot of options have maybe been shut down for those two, but I don't know what that leaves us with. I, d- I don't know where we go from here or, or what it's meant to mean. Whereas with Hunnam, we don't know where he goes, and that that is meaningful, that is important and, and significant. And, you know, at least he's got a, a huge bottle of booze to well, sort of keep him company and sort of not.
3: A couple of things about the ending of The holdovers. I, one is that I think it kind of saves... Kind of was the biggest laugh line in the movie for last with with his kind of like parting shot to the dean. <laughs> that was his a- penis
2: cancer in human form. <laughs> yes. That one <laughs> it
3: was oh yes. that, I mean that that is a massive, <laughs> wonderful, cathartic laugh. And then you get that wonderful button at the end, which is also a nod to uh Giamatti and Payne's other collaboration sideways uh if you recall in in sideways uh giovanni's character had a very precious prized bottle in his collection that he ends up Mm. you know in a moment of sadness sort of drinking in a uh paper cup at a fast food joint and here you know here he sort of steals away with the dean's uh own uh precious uh liquor bottle and and gives it a swig uh, on his way out the uh out under the the road and i thought that was a nice little like self-homage or something i don't know a a nice not only
2: swigs but he spits it out he just like mouthwashes it (laughs)
3: yeah it's (laughs) it's it's, it's, yeah it's defines a different kind of moment but uh, Mm -hmm. uh nonetheless uh wonderful stuff
0: well, we're gonna leave ourselves with a satisfying ending that uh, kind of leaves open the the possibilities of the future. Here, uh, it's possible there's a book version of this podcast where we all like go our separate ways and have specific adventures, and some of us are killed by Shore Patrol. But we don't really want to explore that. The last detail is currently streaming on the Criterion Channel and can be rented digitally at all the usual services. It's also in Blu Ray and DVD. There's a four K Ultra Def version available if you're into that. The Holdovers is streaming on Peacock Premium and it's also available for digital rental on the same platforms, but in some locales it is still in theaters as we record this. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, I believe you've got one for us that I am pretty excited to hear your take on.
3: Uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to uh, stand up for what was uh, intended to be a sequel, but I guess is now called a spiritual sequel to The Last Detail. And that is the uh, that is Richard Linklater's 2017 film, Last Flag Flying. This is kind of Linklater in middle-aged guy form, directing what is a pretty straightforward uh, even at times a little bit corny, uh, a drama about three former Marines and Vietnam veterans played by Steve Carell, uh, Brian Cranston, and Lawrence Fishburne, uh, who reunite after one of them loses his son in the in the, in the Iraq War. It is another film about you know uh, this kind of raggedy you know some serial comic journey that these characters uh, take together but at its heart i mean it's really about these generations of of americans who have been connected by by war and by by loss there's some interesting generational resentment going on between uh, Vietnam veterans who have who felt that like they've been through something and and what of the what of these uh young people who've been to you know more the more current wars what have they what have they gone through and they get kind of a lesson in that too it is um you know I it's it's Linklater very much trying to you know channel uh the spirit of Hal Ashby and, and, and that type of movie and I think doing it pretty well it's not it's not as funny as as the last detail perhaps to its its detriment but um but i think it's i think it kind of was uh underrated and underseen at the, at the at the time and and um you know it's kind of just you know i think it was, it was made for amazon so it's kind of sitting on there now and and uh, you know sort of unloved but i think if you if you um haven't seen it and you're a fan of the last detail and certainly of link ladder uh there's a lot to like about it i think it's a good movie um so uh, and obviously appropriate to this uh pairing of ours so uh, uh last flag flying would be my recommendation
0: to provide a little context for Last Flag Flying in terms of it being a spiritual sequel to uh, Last Detail, there is, a, in fact, a book version. The book version is a literal sequel yes. to Last Detail. It was also written by uh, Daryl Ponickson. And the, he. I, I read an interview with him that was just pretty interesting in terms of providing context there. Like, originally the the conceit was that they were going to get Jack Nicholson and uh, Randy Quaid to reprise their roles. But effectively, the price of getting Nicholson on board would have meant, you know, blowing out the budget, like uh, making this on a a scale that wasn't really the scale that they were looking for. And so they kind of reconciled themselves to like recasting it and making these completely different characters. But the character who loses his son and is taking his body on a a road trip is Meadows, effectively. Mm. And he's taking him cross-country, literally, to go back to the the Navy base where he was imprisoned. So it, it is meant to be the same story with the same characters 34 years later. The thing that I'm most curious about, having read up on this is that Billy is back in the story, and I'm I'm curious how that happens, given that he dies at the end of the last detail of the book.
1: Well, you know, um, Rambo uh, dies at the end of the first Blood novel, and yet he came back.
0: Well, I mean, it also reminds me of, you know, the book that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is based on. Uh, Roger Rabbit dies in, the, in that book, and the author later wrote a sequel, and it was a sequel to the movie, not to the book. So you know, it's it's possible that there's something like that going on here. But uh, anyway, man, if this was like I, a
2: decade ago or more, God, this sounds like the makings of a Navy Club inventory.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Well, these days they've got AI writing all of their inventories, so I'm sure it'll uh, it'll come up with all of those connections no, itself. No, guys, and I uh, did a
1: cool list recently where they listed a bunch of directors' yeah. second films. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Sorry, Ooh. I don't want. I don't want to rack on an old employee. Um, like jaw, jo- like jaw, like jaws. Dan- uh,
3: Spielberg's third film <laughs>
1: was on the list. Dan, you, oh, you, you got to cut all this or amplify it. Put it at the beginning of the episode. At the end of the episode. <laughs>
0: Oh, geez. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to reading the book, uh, Last Flag Flying. And I'm looking forward to watching the movie now knowing what I know, which none of which I knew uh, when that film came out. So I was I was one of the people who underrated it, Scott. So I, I appreciate the recommendation. I'm looking forward to it. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Genevieve, would you like to tell us about our next pairing?
2: In the new British coming-of-age film How to Have Sex, three teenage girls head to the resort city of Malia in the Greek Isles to blow off steam after exams. But in this atmosphere of clubbing, binge drinking, and casual hookups, there's a lot of peril, especially for women who want to have a good time, but often have trouble sorting out which men they can trust. As it turns out, the problems of young women on spring break in 2023 are not that far removed from those of young women on spring break six decades earlier. In 1960s Where the Boys Are, four women from a chilly Midwestern college town head down to Fort Lauderdale looking for a good time and perhaps a little romance. But even in this ostensibly light comedy, the same dangers await them. On our next set of episodes, we'll compare and contrast two films about beach parties that might scare young people into staying home.
0: For now, we welcome your feedback on The Holdovers, The Last Detail, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith?
1: I'm a freelance writer. You can find my work at a bunch of different places like Vulture and TV Guide, sometimes The Ringer, I'm primarily a place called The Reveal, thereveal.substack.com, which I a newsletter I co-write with my pal, Scott Tobias. And I need to do a, a very quick plug. Sorry, guys. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome, uh, is, uh, the, the film restoration Blu-ray company, has put out an edition of the, the film Red Rock West, uh, directed by John Dahl and starring among others, Nicolas Cage. Uh, I am one of the essayists and this book, along with uh, Jourdan Serres and Justin Liberty And uh, it's a really nice package. They did a really nice job with this, with this film, and which has been out of circulation for a long time. It's on their website. I'm sure it's other places too. But Vinegar Syndrome, uh, Red Rock West, I, I highly recommend uh, this essay in the film, but also the film itself. Uh,
0: Sadly, uh, podcast listeners cannot see the package that Keith is holding <laughs> up,
1: but it looks cool. Sean Phillips, the comic book artist I love, did the did the cover art here. But um, all right, well, well Jenny how about you?
0: Well, exciting
2: news. As of about 30 seconds ago, I am back to logging my uh, films I watched this year on Letterboxd. So oh, I, I I'm still I'm still not writing anything about them. I'm taking baby steps, but I'm I'm now logging on on So, logging. you know, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll see. We'll see. Um, but uh, other social media platforms where I am kind of hanging out but not doing anything include uh the service formerly known as Twitter, uh Blue Sky, and Instagram, all of which you can find me doing nothing under the <laughs> handle <laughs> Genevieve Koski. <laughs>
0: I mean people who who don't clutter up my social media feeds with you know stuff like posts and reposts're yeah. kind of the best people to follow yeah. on social yeah, media
2: I'm a, I'm a great follow I give you nothing uh go go girl give them nothing that's that's my social media uh, strategy and uh, when I'm not doing that I am the TV editor at vulture Scott how about you
3: uh yeah so I'm on uh Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias um, uh loose kite. At Scott Tobias, without an underscore, I've been, I have I still haven't done anything on TikTok yet, uh, but uh, maybe <laughs> maybe one day. Um, uh, it, as far as my work goes, uh, the reveal is is uh, the main outlet, of course. Uh, Thereveal.substack.com. If you uh, uh, pour go through that, uh, you you will find among other things a a ranked list of of uh, Alexander Payne movies uh, by me, um, so you Oh, can and I out. had a
1: rank list of uh, Hal Ashby movies for, for Vulture, if you want to look for that, too. You can, you can have, like, a little uh, reunion, you know. Oh, oh of, really? Uh...
3: Well, I had a rank list of Richard Linklater films in which Last five <laughs> Flying, <five, laughs> well, that's on Vulture as well. Wow. You, yeah. yeah. look we'll, uh, we'll, at we'll, that? I'll, I, out, I outrank you, Keith. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so you can find, of course, I mentioned Vulture and uh, New York Times, uh, Guardian, other fine outlets. Uh, Tasha, how about you?
0: Well, I'm not in the New York Times and uh, I'm not on Vulture, but you can find me over at Polygon.com where I am the film and streaming editor. I am on Blue Sky and I'm active there as Tasha Robinson. I'm on Goodreads. I'm on Letterboxd. Uh, I might even be on Instagram these days, though. I'm I'm pulling a Genevieve and just <laughs> quietly ghosting along, looking at Tasha, other stuff. Tasha, you can finally stuff. follow my dogs. I, I could not find your uh, your dogs I, I followed you on Instagram I could not find your dog's oh. account maybe you should remind us Genevieve of I'll have Birdie message you of <laughs> Ladybird <Grint> the Horgy <laughs> message you <laughs> Oh, but what about our listeners? They want to see your dogs. Your dogs are cute. <laughs> they are. It's Ladybird the Horgie. <laughs> there we go. Are there a bunch of underscores in that? Nope. That's Maybe that's why I couldn't find it. All right. Ladybird the Horgie it is. <laughs> Stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at nextpicturepod, and on Blue Sky at the Next Picture Show. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash show. As always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show. We want to hear from you. Thanks to Dan, the Bake Jakes, for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.